It's good to see all of you this morning. As you're turning once again in your Bibles to John chapter 7 and finding verse 39, we can take just a moment to remember where we are in the narrative as we return now to God's Word and what we're seeing through the Apostle John. As Since verse 10 of this chapter, we have been hearing Jesus back down now in Jerusalem. You remember what's brought him down. He's come down during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. As we come to verse 37 this morning, we have come to the last day of that festival. This is where we are situated as we pick back up on this narrative. We'll focus in particular on verses 37 to 39. This morning, only a three-verse section because of some of what Jesus is going to say here. It requires a great deal of our attention. But what we're hearing, as Jesus says the things we're about to read, is we're hearing him shout out to the gathered crowd at the pinnacle of this celebration. It's the seventh day. It's the last day of the festival. And as he shouts out, what he's going to be giving them and what we're going to be seeing and hearing is an image that he's leaving with them in their minds. And I would have a start simply by hearing it. So listen as we read, and as as you're hearing this, listen in particular to the image that he is putting into their mind on that day, and that he's putting into our minds. Uh, And as we're we're limiting our focus to 37 to 39, we will read, though, from 37 uh, down to verse 46. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John continues in this way. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Here's where we we are going with our time this morning. We, We begin by being sure to understand why Jesus' offer here, in the way that he offers it, is particularly timely. Why he makes the offer that he does on this day in the terms that he does. That's what we'll start with this morning, is thinking about the appropriateness of this offer of water to the Feast of Booths. 
Uh, and the rest of our time then will simply be spent asking one question, although we're going to ask it twice. The question we'll ask is, what exactly is Jesus offering? As he stands there and cries out on the last day of this festival, the largest of the festivals, to this tremendous group, what is it that he's offering? We'll ask that twice. We'll ask it of verses 37 and 38, and then we'll ask it again of verse 39. But first, let's consider why he is choosing this way of making the offer, why he's wording things the way he is, and why it is so timely. I wouldn't be telling you anything that you don't already know if I said to you that Jesus is an excellent teacher. A good teacher uses good examples. Uh, And an example is potentially good for several possible reasons. A good example would be good uh, when it conveys something true. A good example always conveys something true. A good example could be good because it is especially memorable for its own sake. Uh, And sometimes an example is good because it is particularly timely. It's just a very good fit for the context that it's given in. An example could be good for any of those reasons. Jesus makes an illustration this morning. And in this case, all three of those indicators about goodness of an example, all three of them would be true. And that's because the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration that centered in large part around displays of water. This is something, water has been a principal part of what they have been doing for these seven days of this feast. It was a seven-day celebration culminating on the day that Jesus stands and speaks. It's good to notice that he waits until that day to stand and to do this. And he does it in a, in a unique way. He does stand and he cries out. Teachers in that day did the opposite of what we are doing right now. The teachers in that day would sit and teach and those listening to them would be standing normally. So in, his, in this posture that he is in, as he stands and cries out, the posture itself would draw attention. And of course his crying out here Uh, He is intending to reach maximum hearing as he delivers this illustration, this image. We're meant to be able to tell that this is a significant moment in his mind. He has come down for this purpose. You remember, he didn't come at the beginning of the feast. He didn't come to keep the feast. He came at the perfect time. He came to perfectly obey the leading of his father. And this is what his father has led him here to do. And his cry is going to be an invitation to the thirsty. I read several descriptions of what has been going on in this festival. I wanted to share one of them with you. D.A. Carson describes the events of the Feast of Tabernacles like this. He says, on the seven days of the feast, a golden flagon, that's not a word I'm familiar with, but this is some kind of a special cup, A golden flagon was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. This is what happened on a daily basis. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the shofar, that's a trumpet connected with joyful occasions, three blasts from the shofar were sounded. And while the pilgrims watched, the priests 
processed around the altar with the flagon, all while the temple choir sang the Hallel. The Hallel is the singing of Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. So you, you're getting the image in your, in your mind as I'm reading this. This is a, now a procession with the flagon probably raised around, around the altar. There is the professional singing of these psalms as this happens. And he continues, he says, When the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook a lulab. These are twigs tied with palm in his right hand while he raised his left hand with a piece of citrus fruit a sign of the ingathered harvest. And all cried together, give thanks to the Lord three times. The water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice, along with the daily drink offering of wine. The wine and the water were poured into their respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. Moreover, these feasts were related in Jewish thought and teaching, both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. Now you need to notice that there is, there is in their minds a looking back and a looking forward to God's provision. Pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles refers symbolically to the Messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth, end quote. So this gives us a good mental image of, and remember this is the seventh day. This is what has been happening each day of this festival. And you can hear in that, that water at this festival is a terribly significant visual image. And one that looks back at God's provision and looks forward for God's provision. Now what I would have us think about now for, for a time as we look at verses 37 and 38 is to think about that forward-looking provision that they are announcing, proclaiming, every year as they gather for this feast. In terms of that forward-looking provision, it is a provision God spoke of long ago by the prophets. And this is where we need to recognize exactly what Jesus is offering when he stands up and says the things he says about himself. So this is what we're doing now, is we're asking the question, what is Jesus offering in verses 37 and 38? And as I said, we'll ask it a second time because we will learn more. There will be further clarification in verse 39 by John when he chimes in and gives explanation. But before that, though, what is Jesus pointing to? What is he appealing to as he says what he says in verses 37 and 38? What is he claiming of himself? Well, we see in countless places that water provision has become a thematic way of speaking in the Old Testament regarding God's coming salvation. So we have many places like Isaiah 12, 3, which simply says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's the kind of thing I mean. This has become one of the common ways to speak about the hope of what God is going to give in the future. And that language is quite common. But there are some places in particular where God speaking through the prophets uses water in this particular way to teach them about what they are waiting for, what they are trusting him for, what they're hoping in. One of those places, maybe the best one, is Ezekiel 47. And I'd ask you to turn with me back to Ezekiel 47 for just a moment, because I'm going to read, I'd like to read the first 12 verses of Ezekiel 47. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. If you find any of those, you are right, you're right there. What's happening as chapter 47 begins is Ezekiel is being shown a vision of the temple. He has been being shown many things uh, in this vision thus far in, in the book. You're going to notice in verse 3 the reference to a man with him. Uh, there's something of a guide that God has given him through most of this book uh, that is showing him things. That may be, that, that may be the Lord, that may be an angelic guide. But just listen to the picture that's given to us here in the first 12 verses of Ezekiel 47. It says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer, to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward, so now walking outside away from the temple, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. He's talking about the Dead Sea there. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For, the water, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Enaglaim, there will, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And we'll stop there. I wonder if there are different places in Scripture, different places in the New Testament even, that are jumping out into your mind as you're hearing some of these descriptions of what God is showing Ezekiel that God is going to do. And he uses this image of water coming out from the temple that grows into a river, and everywhere it goes, life comes. Everywhere it goes, there is life. You think of the imagery of verse 10. You think of, 
I mean, I hear that and I think, evangelists, these are the apostles going out, becoming fishers of men. This is what we are called to do. As the water flows, there's just, there's just life coming from out of this. Ending in verse 12 with leaves that don't wither, fruit that doesn't fail, just like the righteous in Psalm chapter 1, who was planted securely. This is a beautiful picture. This is the kind of picture that God gave through the prophets about what he was going to do in the latter days. So we need to notice these depictions. Now, what is this a picture of? Well, what we have here directly is we have clearly a picture of God's presence in his sanctuary, bringing forth his blessing of life. And Jesus stands up in our passage. We can come back to John 7. He stands up at the pinnacle of this celebration, picturing these things, looking ahead to these promises. And he shouts out, who's thirsty? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see how appropriate this imagery is that Jesus is employing here. But we need to, we need to recognize it's really more than that. It's not just imagery. It's not just illustration. Jesus is claiming that he is the source of the provision that this celebration has been about all along. It's here. Come to me and drink. It's here. You must come to me if you want to drink this water that you've been hoping for. And he further describes what he means, doesn't he? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You must believe in me. That's what we're talking about here. Put your trust in me. And it is amazing what he says there at the end of 38. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Think about that in light of what we just read in Ezekiel. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not out of the temple, mind you. Out of that man who has come and drunk. Out of his belly, literally, it says. Other translations say things like, out of his innermost being, or from deep within him. This is just like what he offered the Samaritan woman in John 4, 14. You remember that? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now notice in both of those, it's still Jesus who is the source of this blessing. But the blessing is coming through these individuals who have come to him and have drunk of the water that he offers. And do you see then why in light of the fact that this is coming from Old Testament allusions to the temple, water coming out of the temple. You see why Peter will call individual believers living stones being built up as a spiritual house. And believers will be called a temple of the Holy Spirit. See, this then is what our Lord is offering in verses 37 and 38. He is claiming to be the bringer of God's promised eschatological blessings. And don't miss how exactly he says we share in, his, in, in this blessing. 
As we've said, he likens it to drinking the water he's offering, but he then speaks of it as believing in him. He's calling us to put our trust in him. To turn to him in faith. And what he's going to give us, he says here, is is water that will become a running river of blessing. That doesn't just bless that individual, but in fact spills out blessing to those around that individual. This is what he's offering. This is what he is saying he has come to bring. And so that's the answer to the first round of this question. What is Jesus offering in verses 37 and 38? Now, we're going to ask that question again now as we turn to verse 39. And we'll spend the rest of our time this morning in verse 39. What does this verse tell us about this offer that our Lord is making? Here is where, verse 39 is where, the gospel writer comes in with his post-cross, post-resurrection and ascension, post-Pentecost perspective and gives explanation here. He interprets the imagery for us. No more imagery. Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, the first thing we can see here is that what Jesus brings, what's pictured by this inner river of life-bringing water, is not... We shouldn't think of it as blessing in general or undefined blessing. He's talking about the giving of the the Holy Spirit of God, the sending of the third person of the Trinity to God's people. When Jesus shares the spoils of his victory, what he will be doing is what the Old Testament prophets have long predicted. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you. Ezekiel 39, 29, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel. Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Joel 2, 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. These are realities that the prophets had been longing for. And can you hear in each of those instances that I just read to you, can you hear the future tense in what they're saying? Can you hear that when that day comes that they are speaking to, it's going to represent a change in the status quo. It's not a condition that they were presently enjoying as they write those things, is it? It's something they're looking for, longing for, the day when the Lord will pour out his spirit upon his people. And that matches the way that Christ speaks about it here. It is is a terribly significant statement, what we have here in verse 39. It's significant to our understanding of, of, uh, we could say, our pneumatology, our understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit and especially of his place in God's redemptive historical activity. So let's reflect on this for a few minutes here. And I would have you notice again, in particular, what he says in the second half of the verse. Look again at verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him, in Jesus, were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
You can hear John's sense that he needs to add some explanation. And so he gives careful description here. He says, Jesus is speaking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then notice he talks about those who presently believe in Christ. He says, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And you can tell he senses the need to explain that future tense. What do you mean they were to receive? Remember, he's writing from a post-death, resurrection, ascension uh, reality. Uh, those in his time would be confused as they read this. Wait a minute. When I believe, I receive the Holy Spirit. What do you mean there are these who have believed and have not yet received the Holy Spirit? He says, well, that's because as yet, in John 7, 39's time, as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given. Why not? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's why not. You hear him helping his readers to understand the difference between then and then, <laughs> between John 7's time and his current time. So this giving of the Spirit that he's describing, what has to precede it, according to what John is saying here? Well, Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. The glory of Jesus must happen before the Spirit is going to be sent. The Spirit will not be given, as it's stated here, while Jesus remains on earth. And so throughout this gospel, we, we hear him speak about, and often the Lord Jesus speak about, a particular presence of the Holy Spirit that is only appropriately spoken of then in the future tense. Now that does not mean, it, it, do not hear me to suggest that there's no way to speak of the Holy Spirit's presence or work prior to Jesus' death and ascension. That's, that's obviously not the case. Remember, the Holy Spirit already descended and remained upon Jesus in chapter 1 of this gospel. It's not like he's not present and not at work. But in what Jesus is speaking of here, it's described in terms like those that we hear in John chapter 14, which will be the next time that the Holy Spirit will come up in this gospel. Turn over for just a moment to chapter 14, because there's a statement there that is so helpful to us here. We will hear Jesus say things like what we see in John 14, 16, at several other places as well. We'll hear him say there, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. But look especially at verse 17 there in that chapter. He goes on to describe this helper that God is going to send when Jesus asks. He says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Listen to this. For he dwells with you and will be in you. You see the distinction that Jesus makes there? When John says in our text that the Spirit was not yet given, he obviously does not mean that the Holy Spirit had yet to exist or had yet to be at work in the world or anything like that. In fact, don't forget, the Holy Spirit has been mentioned in every chapter up to this point, except for chapter 2. But what we are hearing about here is this. We're hearing that Jesus' end goal for his people is inextricably connected with something of a development as regards the presence of the Holy Spirit 
in the lives of God's people. Let me say that again. We're hearing that Jesus' end goal as regards his own people, is inextricably connected with something of a development regarding the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can notice that on its face here because that's what he is offering, isn't it? Come believe in me. Drink of the water that I will give you. And as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit. This is the point of our passage here this morning. He's looking ahead to a development. Now, there's something about that subject that can be hard to understand. And we're going to try to to plumb some of those depths here for the rest of our time. But we do that because this is also very important for us. So, I, I want to ask another question here, and this is what we'll spend the rest of our time considering. What do we know from Scripture about this development that John is describing to us here, this development in reference to the presence of the Holy Spirit? And I would suggest to you two things that we know, uh, that we don't know, uh, and two things that we do. Two things that this is not describing, and two things that it is. So here's, here's two things that we are not hearing here regarding a development uh, as pertains to the Holy Spirit. The first one is this. This is not a development in terms of an arrival by the Holy Spirit at a new location. Jesus is not looking ahead to a day where the Holy Spirit will be present in a place where he was not present beforehand. And we used, when our boys were young, at least for some of them, we used these uh, little children's catechism books called the Truth and Grace Catechism, I think is what it was called. They're fantastic. I mean, young, young, they're able to, to learn and repeat these answers. It's just, it's fun. One of the first questions that that book asked was the question, where is God? What do you think the answer was that they learned to say? Where is God? The answer in that book is, God is everywhere. God is everywhere. Where can I go to depart from your presence? Bottom of the sea? Outer space? Where can I go to depart from your your presence, to flee from you? There is no place that I can go. The psalmist poses that question. So there is no location that the Holy Spirit is then going to come to that he hadn't been before, because he's God, and God is everywhere. A good example of how this plays in, uh, there are many good examples, but one of them that came to my mind is the burning bush. Moses and the burning bush. When Moses came upon the burning bush, do you remember what he needed to do? He needed to take off his sandals because the place, the ground on which he stood was holy ground. The day before or the day after that, he could have walked through there just fine. He wouldn't have needed to remove his sandals, Right? Yet that was not, on those days, a place where God's presence was absent. So what happened in the burning bush? God's presence did not come to a place in that area where it had not been the day before. And so now Moses needs to take his sandals off. That's not what was happening. Before 1 Kings chapter 8, God is still everywhere. He is still omnipresent. But before 1 Kings chapter 8, his presence, as the scriptures describe it to us, has not yet come to dwell in the Holy of Holies. 
And so the construction workers are building the temple. They're building the Holy of Holies. They're in there constructing. But in 1 Kings 8, his presence comes to dwell in the Holy of Holies. And now you die if you go in. And in fact, in that chapter, they can't even stay in the whole building. They have to get out because the presence of God is so intense. The scriptures can speak like that and be speaking accurately about a change in presence that is not amounting to a newness of location. What we find in those kinds of places is that God's presence wasn't absent before that, but his presence was manifested in a qualitatively different way in that act of God in that time. Do you see the distinction? So that's one thing. We're not talking about a development for the Holy Spirit of an arrival at a new location. Another thing that we're not talking about when we speak of this development is we're not talking about a development from inactivity to activity. The Holy Spirit is incredibly active in the Old Testament. He is, by which I mean he is explicitly spoken of over and over in the Old Testament. He's active in creation in Genesis chapter 1. His activity is repeatedly described on the pages of Scripture in God's dealings with his people. There are around 100 references to the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. And furthermore, can I say this? Every time God ever does anything, the Holy Spirit is active in that doing. There are no works of God that the Father engages in that the Holy Spirit is utterly removed from or not participating in. They are inseparable in their operations. The Holy Spirit is active in the Old Testament. So Jesus is not at all speaking about the beginning of the Holy Spirit's activity in general. Those are two things that we are not speaking about, that Jesus is not predicting when he talks about a coming future presence of the Spirit. Two things we, I would venture to say, and I've had to be, be cautious here, I'll explain that in a moment, but two things I would venture to say that the scriptures tell us uh, this is speaking of. One of them is this, this development is related to us as a development in redemptive history. In other words, whatever this is, it's an improvement of some kind. It's an improvement. That should be completely uncontroversial to us if for no other reason than Jesus' words to his disciples in John 16, 7, when he's speaking about the fact that he's going to go away. Do you remember what he said? He said, it is to your what that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. What does that mean? That means, guys, you should want me to go. Because if I don't go, I will not send the helper to you. You want the helper sent to you. This is a good place to simply lay out several verses that indicate the sending of the Holy Spirit as both a new and an enhancing event for the experience of God's people. We just heard John 16, 7. That's certainly one of them. John 14, 17, he says, The Father will send another helper. We've already looked at this one. The world doesn't know him, he says, but you know him. And he says there in John 14, 17, For he dwells with you and will be in you. He is with you now, but then he will be in you. These disciples are living, you could say, in the Old Testament era. 
because they're living prior to Jesus' death. The Holy Spirit is not yet in them in the way that Jesus is describing there. There is a change. He's with them. He will be in them. And I hope it's not something that I need to persuade you about, that that's supposed to be seen by them as an improvement, as a development in a positive way in terms of relationship. The second thing that I would say about what the scriptures tell us about this development, here's where... uh, We'll see if this sounds like a cop-out or not, but here it is. Articulating the nature of that development is difficult. What do we mean in this development? What did Jesus mean when he says, he is with you, but he will be in you? How much detail can we get down to articulate uh, the nature of that development? And I would open this piece up by saying it that way. It is difficult. And we do need to be cautious to not say more than the scriptures reveal to us. Trying to articulate the nature of that development usually leads to a certain kind of response. You know this kind of response? It's the response that starts with words like, so are you saying? It leads to that kind of thing. So here's an example. The Holy Spirit indwells us. John 14, 17. He did not indwell Old Testament believers. John 14, 17. So are you saying that the Old Testament saints were not saved? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the nature of the Spirit's interactions with God's people was different than it is today, than it is post-death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and specifically post-day of Pentecost. Even after his resurrection, he tells them to go and to pray and to wait. Don't do anything. Wait until the Father sends the Holy Spirit to you. It's Pentecost where this promise becomes a reality. And before that moment, the Spirit's interactions with God's people was something of different than it is today. So in the Old Testament, you have the Spirit described as descending upon certain individuals particularly kings and prophets, and at times withdrawing from them as well. So that David needs to pray and ask, God, please do not take your spirit from me. And he's not speaking about the loss of salvation. He's speaking about the loss of this particular Holy Spirit anointing that he has been given. The Spirit has come and dwelt upon him, with him. We see that kind of of behavior and activity between the Spirit and God's people. And it does not look the same as what we see in the New Testament. So I wanted to share a couple of things that others have said about this, because I found them helpful. Uh, One is a man named John Stott. He wrote this, Although Old Testament believers knew God and experienced a new birth, there is now an indwelling of the Spirit which they never knew, which belongs to the new covenant and to the kingdom of God. The second is a man named Sinclair Ferguson. We've read some of his material in uh, adult Sunday school before. He says this, he says, the spirit had been active among God's people, but his activity was enigmatic, sporadic, theocratic, selective, and in some respects, external. The prophets longed for better days. 
By contrast, in the anticipated new covenant, the Spirit would be poured out in a universal manner. Not universal in terms of all mankind. Universal in terms of all the covenant members. Dwelling in them personally and permanently. That's how he ends what he wrote there. So we're seeing this development, and we're seeing it, one way we are taught to articulate it in terms of how Jesus describes it is in terms of an indwelling. The Holy Spirit indwells his people in this age in a way that he did not before. Here's another example of the kind of thing that can produce some questions. And this one is very relevant to verse 38 of our text this morning, where he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit, who they were about to receive. He has not been given yet. What is the picture that we have, that we're given, when he speaks of the coming and the work of the Spirit in a unique way, in a new way, and he speaks of it in these terms? Rivers will flow out of that man's heart. It seems to me that there is something said here about what we call the fruit of the Spirit. There is a product, in other words, of his indwelling presence in our lives that we now enjoy because the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to dwell in the hearts of his people. There's a product of that, of that indwelling presence that is different than the experience of Old Testament saints who did not experience the Holy Spirit in the same way. So are you saying that the Old Testament saints didn't have fruit of the Spirit? And I would say, no, I'm not saying that. But I do think that there must be some manifestation of the Spirit's help since Pentecost and the inbreaking of the age to come that looks different. And to be honest, I would be hesitant, I am hesitant, to try to speak much more specifically than that. I'm not sure that we're given that much more in terms of detail of what that experiential difference is. You certainly see the Spirit at work in the lives of his people in the Old Testament. You see displays of love and joy and peace and patience. Again, we're not saying that he's been inactive. But we must say what the scriptures lead us to say. We must not say more than that. But we have to work not to say less than that. And one thing that we, I think, are meant to do in a passage like this is to thank God. God, thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit that you have sent to dwell within me. I, I know that I am tremendously, unspeakably blessed because when Christ ascended back to the Father, you sent the Spirit to come and to dwell with me and in me. And we're to be thankful for that. And with the time that we have remaining, I would have us think on that for just a moment and think about maybe how that can lead us to think more in reference to the fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives. We read in Galatians chapter 5 that there's this battle. Remember the battle that's described there? That our own natural flesh wages war against the work of the Spirit. It's put in these, this fascinating and very um, relatable terms in Galatians 5.17. Paul wrote, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. As a Christian, you live your life in a war zone. 
don't you? We think of that in terms of the wider culture in many, uh, most of the time, and that's certainly the case. It's not what Paul's talking about. He's describing a war zone that is within you. You come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're made alive. And guess what? Congratulations. To the day you die now, you are in a battle. You're in a war zone. And we, we find that it plays out exactly like we read there in Galatians 5.17. When by the Spirit you're led in a particular season toward godliness, guess what's always there? Always there is the flesh trying to work against that. Trying to give you reasons to grow discouraged, to grow weary, to doubt your own motives, to impugn because you're not... uh, flawless in your motives to tell you to give up. All the while that you're pursuing godliness, the flesh is pulling, trying to keep you from doing that which you would do. And when the flesh, as a child of God, when the flesh works to pull you into sin and rebellion as it is constantly seeking to do, here is God's promise. There will be the Spirit working against that. Bearing witness through your conscience. Reminding you of God's past faithfulness. Warning you. It's a war. And at times, war is exhausting. Right? At times it can be exhausting. There may be many Sorry, there may be many here who are exhausted. And I trust that they have come to the right place in their exhaustion and that they have a room full of hugs and prayers and comfort in this family waiting for them. But, you know, we get exhausted at different stages of a trial, depending on how healthy we are. Can I tell you something about myself that will probably shock you? I think it will shock you. Here it is. I'm never going to participate in any of those strongman competitions that you'll sometimes see. I see them on TV sometimes. We have a good friend in Houston who I think won the state Strongman competition in his age bracket. I'm never going to be on one of those competitions. I know it's shocking to you. (laughs) But it's just the case. It's who I am. I can remember a time very recently when I was working at home to replace a ceiling fan in one of the boys' rooms. And you know how that is. So my arms are over my head. I'm trying to do these things. And they're starting to shake. And they're starting to ache. And it's probably not been long enough that I should be starting to to feel that. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, this would really be a lot easier. And it would go a lot faster if I just had more upper body strength and more endurance. Darn, that that would be nice. It would make this battle easier. And it strikes me that those sorts of parallels in the physical can be very helpful to us in thinking and feeling rightly. 
about what um, places like verse 38 of our text tell us about the work of the Holy Spirit. Why did God give us this gift? What is, he, what is he working through this gift of sending the third person of the Trinity? He says it's like a river of living water. I mean, it's genuinely life-giving. And what that means is this, that our sense of an active desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that is to say, to obey the command of Ephesians 5.18, where Paul said, commands us, be being full of the Holy Spirit, be being filled of the Holy Spirit, which is not at all talking about the indwelling of the Spirit. That's not something we have anything to do with. That's a work of God. Uh, and this, the, the Holy Spirit is not a glass of water, so you don't get some of him and need more of him. He's a person. It's not what he's talking about. It's, as one commentator puts it there in that passage, he sort of interprets it this way. Let your fullness be that which comes through the Holy Spirit. Our sense of an active desire for that, to be cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. This is, all of the, what all this tells us is that's not something pithy. To read these places to, to desire to grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not a pithy thing. It's not a desire that's to be brought to the chopping block when life becomes busy and hectic. Men, it's not a concern for your wives and your children, but not for you. Far be it. Do you never hang your head at the thought of your loss of self-control? your lack of gentleness in that instance, the destructive effect that that outburst of impatience had on the people that you love, does that never lead you to hang your head in shame? There is an explanation for those moments, for those experiences. It's the flesh. It's the fact that we remain weak, needy people. But it may be that in terms of the frequency, in terms of the depth, in terms of the, uh, the inability that we feel on display, it may be that there's another explanation. And we need to hear this this morning. They aren't explained by a deficiency in what God has provided, are they? Jesus beckons anyone who thirsts, Come to me and drink, and whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We should find this attractive. It's certainly true that he is speaking about the coming and indwelling that happens on the day of our conversion. But the application of what Jesus is telling us here does not end at the day of our conversion. What we're hearing is a description of the effect of the Holy Spirit, a description of the relief and the blessing that God brings us through a spirit-led life. What we find here this morning is that there is but one way into that kind of life, isn't there? When God said in Isaiah 44, I will pour water on the thirsty land, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, what we're finding through the revelation of Christ Jesus is that God was describing the work that he would accomplish through his Son, that's what he was always talking about. There is no other source, in other words. There is no other source for water for a thirsty land. 
Verse 39, this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. We do well to recognize the intensity of the Lord on display here as he stands and cries this out on the last day of this feast. The urgency in him. As he issues this wide invitation, come to me. Come to me and drink. And the water that I will give you, the spirit that God sends to those who trust in Christ, who come to him, oh, it will satisfy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we again bow humbly before you this morning on this week. You have seen us through more days. Lord, we confess with great joy that you've numbered our days. You are the sovereign one. There is none who thwarts your plans. There is none who will question you. God, we pray as your people that you would humble us more. When is there a time in our life when we will not need to pray that you will humble us properly? We, you have shown us our hearts. You have shown us our sin. You've shown us our weakness. And we have seen on display the surpassing greatness and sufficiency and might and love on display in your son. We thank you again this morning for him. God, help us to lean upon him, to run to him all the days of our lives. And we do thank you for the work that you are bringing to completion in us by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would help us. Give us strength, cause us to fix our eyes on you as you've revealed yourself in your word so that we might grow after the image of him. And we pray in his name. Amen.